0: Welcome to Forecast. Now here's your host, Michael
1: Farr. Welcome to the Forecast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We appreciate it very much. Terrific Farcast last week, but nothing compared to this week. Probably our best ever for you tonight. Uh, we have, uh, from Midhold Security, uh, the CEO, Josh Brown, my buddy from CNBC, for our ser- first segment covering Wall Street as we do every week. When we go to Washington, we have Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. And then for our third segment, when we cover the world, we have our friend Chris Campbell. Chris Campbell is on the board of Yum Brands China. He was general counsel to Yum Brands. He was responsible for the spinoff. He continues to be on that board. He was head of all the franchises in the U.S. We're going to learn about doing business in China and what it's like to have and 50,000 employees in China uh, and what these tariffs will mean. In our first segment, though, it's a real treat. Uh, we, we're going we're to talk with my friend Josh Brown. Remember first that on the Forecast we believe that money is hard to make. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And finally, we believe that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are feeling fearful or ebullient or joyful don't make a move in your portfolio based on how you feel go walk around the block do something else make sure you're leading with your uh, most rational side uh, if you start to make changes uh, in your portfolio anyway my buddy uh, as you go uh, uh, from CNBC is Josh Brown chief executive officer for Ritholtz wealth management he's been on CNBC forever when I get to be on with him and you see other people on the set rolling their eyes at them, look over at Far because Far is probably nodding. Uh, this guy, Josh <laughs> Brown, just makes a hell of a lot of sense. Author of Backstage, Wall Street, Clash of the Financial, Pundits. Uh, this guy is the pro's pro on Wall Street. Hey, welcome to the Farcast, Josh.
2: Thank you. And, and Michael, I also have 450,000 employees in China. So I just wanted to make sure Isn't we got that, that on the honest? air.
1: God, that's wonderful. So yeah. you know that is still what less than one half of one percent of the. I know, <laughs> I know all their names.
2: I know all their names.
1: You're remarkable that way. That's terrific that you keep track of your employees. <laughs> that way. That's. Uh, uh, we have about
2: uh, we we have about thirty right now, and really? uh, it's more than cool. I ever would have would have expected uh, when we started the wealth management firm. There there were five of us. So uh, we've we've grown.
1: Uh, you've really grown, but have you now? Uh, do you have employees in China?
2: I do not. No, we but ah. but we um, yes. strangely um, very different than many other registered investment advisory firms. We started out nationally right off the bat, as opposed to locally and then regionally and then nationally. So uh, I think my seventh hire was in in Portland, Oregon. Um, and we 've since opened offices in Chicago, Newport Beach, California, Florida, Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, opened in New Orleans last summer, North Carolina last month. So um, we do kind of have this national footprint growing, which is really interesting because it started almost from the beginning, and I think that 's the power of communicating with investors over the internet um, the the region the, 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 the regions of, uh, almost don 't matter. If you're connecting with people uh, on a certain level
1: and that's really the key to the at least the wealth management side of the business. I would argue on the institutional side of the business too. It's that connection and making sure that you have a shared understanding with your client yes
2: yeah I think I think a, an investment philosophy that can be explained in a sentence or two um, and can be communicated in a myriad of ways on different mediums, different platforms, and and just, like, kind of having this, like, this is what we believe, this is what we don't believe, this is what we're going to do with your money, and this is what we won't do with your money, and having that be very clear to people, I think it erases the borders of, well, you're in New York, and I'm in Texas, or you're on the East Coast, and I'm on, on the West Coast. You know, I think people are really looking for authenticity And an investment philosophy that not only makes sense um, intuitively, but also can be backed up by evidence and and research. So I think we do a pretty good job at at getting that across.
1: Well, I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, of all the people I've known on Wall Street over the years, Barry Ritholtz and and, uh, Josh Brown are two of the most authentic folks I know. Uh, you I mean when when they'll tell you what they're thinking i mean you uh, there's, there's there's no subterfuge there at all <laughs> sometimes they'll tell you a little bit more than they're thinking uh, at least josh will but uh, and and Barry, I think is just such a clear thinker about the investment process, and I think he i mean always has been uh reading him and all of the weekend newspapers is, is i think must reading you just have to do it so uh, w- so while before we get off uh, before we get to markets and for investors. Tell me also, just basically, what do you guys do at RedHoltz, please? So
2: we build uh, portfolios for high net worth investors based on um, financial planning work that we're doing on the front end. And the idea is for the asset allocation to be an answer to the question that every client that comes to us has. And that question is, am I going to be all right? Can I do the things that I need to do or want to do? with my wealth, when I want to do it, what, you know, how how do I get to where I'm trying to go? Do I even know yet where I'm trying to go? So the first few conversations we have with clients are not about, should I buy Google or Netflix? The the conversations are about, you've amassed X dollars, you have another Y number of years to work, Um, the inflation picture is this, your taxes are that, um, you know, the, the, the future uses of your money, do you and your spouse agree? If you do agree, that's great. Do you agree on the timing, uh, where you want to live when, when you retire? And, and, when, and when we answer those questions, then we can work backwards and arrive at the right portfolio answer. So I, really? I, know, yeah. Yeah. I, I know in, in asset ahead. management, a lot of, a lot of um, investors or, or advisors start with, what should I invest in? Um, but we have to start with, what are you going to do with the money first?
1: Yeah, I, I, it's such a key differentiator, and it makes so much difference to the client. Do you guys have a minimum?
2: Um, we're 750000 now, and I would say that our average household is $3 million. Um, Perfect. And, and then we've got a, a business where we work with teachers on their 403Bs, and obviously the minimum there is, is smaller. And we've got an automated uh, online uh, advice and, and asset allocation program, that starts at five thousand, which is which is basically wow. some people call it a robo, um, but yeah. but our our typical client is a couple of million dollars, somewhere within the realm of getting very serious about a retirement plan, and I think that that's where we really excel.
1: That's uh, that that I think is is so needed that kind of advice and Far Miller in Washington. Takes a very similar approach. Maybe it's why I nod so much when you're on the when you're on CNBC. <laughs> uh, well, but you know we speak the same language. It's like, wait a minute, I'm talking to you know. Uh, I think you even said it once. You said, you know, Michael talks to ten year money, uh, and and that's really what I do. It's ten year and twenty year money. I right. Don't, I don't I don't talk to ten minute money.
2: The, but here's the but here's the here's the hard part. Ten year money easily forgets that it's ten year money. And sometimes it thinks it's 10-minute money. And so our job, Michael, you and I, um, and many other professionals in the industry, our job is to refocus those conversations before they get ridiculous. Uh,
1: I think that, uh, speaking of ridiculous, I think that all of this hue and cry for the end of the world and we're all going into recession and everything's coming to a dark final end here, this all strikes me as ridiculous, Josh. But tell me your take.
2: Well, I hope we have a recession. I'm 42 years old, so I have another 30 years <laughs> to accumulate assets. Um, I, you know, I, my, money, my money goes into the 401k every two weeks, um, and, and I'm adding to the same exact model portfolios that our clients are adding to. So, you know, I, my clients that are in retirement already are not fully exposed to, to equities, of course. They're in tax-free municipal bonds. They're in treasuries, in addition to equities, Um, and and so you know I I don't look. You you never root for a bad economy or a bad market, but I just I would just make the point that we have 73 million millennials in this country who are currently accumulating for a retirement that is decades in the future. The idea that we should be rooting for new all-time highs all the time is absurd. The, best, the absolute best thing that can happen for a majority of investors who are currently um, investing toward their retirement would be for there to be a prolonged discount to valuations and to all-time highs so they could buy even more stocks. Um, you know, it's, it, it, so I think when you start
1: thinking that way
2: as a professional and you impart that to clients, they appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think kind of reminding them after the last 10 years that stocks indeed go down – and that's normal, uh, and it's 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 not to be feared. It is to be endured. It is to be endured, but it's not to be feared. It is part of the investing process. And you don't see Warren Buffett losing his uh, uh, mind. See, I was wondering what I was going to say there, losing his mind. Uh, uh, <laughs> when, no, he makes his Warren, he
2: makes his bread and butter when that he makes his biggest best deals. The like if if you, if, you, if you run down the list of Warren Buffett's biggest success stories let's say post 1990 forget about yes. forget about all this you know all, all, all the stuff in, in in the early days of Berkshire if you just look yes. at like the best things he did um, in the last let's say 30 years almost all of those phenomenal deals took place in the context of I don't want to say outright recession but um, a, a dark time in the market where huge bargains were available so now now he's wired differently than most of us most of us don't see a burning building, and run into it with our wallets open, right? Yes. So that's not to be expected of <laughs> our clients. But, you know, if, if, if we're not using the money tomorrow and we know we yes. have years to invest, then all things being equal, why are we rooting to pay all-time high prices for stocks? makes no sense at all. Now, people get no caught up in, in, in that fear um, because it's coupled with, job security stuff. So yes. you know, it's not like, oh, I want a recession. Like, you know people are going to be laid off. You know some people are going to lose their homes. It's not good. But you also know it's inevitable. So I think you have to balance these ideas out.
1: So as, as we look at uh, and as we've got an audience uh, uh, full of average investors, and at Miller in Washington, we kept our minimum at a half a uh, million dollars. And the average account's kind of two and a half million, uh, so we're, we're average relationship. So we're kind of right in there uh, it, with you guys. But when, when we're, we've got clients who are listening and, and they're kind of hearing what's going on and an earnings season that may be tough here and all of the talk with China, what should they be thinking between now and the end of the year? Hell, we've had a pretty good year in the first quarter already. Well,
2: I mean we we have no forecasts. We don't have an earnings view. We don't have a a multiple view. We don't have an economic view. It's just it's very, very divorced from what what we're telling what we're telling clients is um, that you've gotta build durable portfolios based on a variety of possibilities. And yes, we can stack certain probabilities up as being higher than others, but we can't eliminate any you know, anything can happen any given year Um, And even if you knew, even if you knew what earnings would be this year and what, you know, GDP growth would be this year, even if I gave you that information in advance, what would you do with it? So, you know, last year you had 25% earnings growth. Unbelievable. You had accelerating wage growth. You had um, faster-than-trend GDP. And the S&P ended up down negative 5%. So, like, even if I told you, uh, how good or bad 2019 would be, then what? So we're not focused on that. I, I think we, we, what we're really trying to do is say, what is the right portfolio given the client's life situation, um, which is now and in the future, and then working backwards, how do we invest um, based on that? And, and baking in all these contingencies that any, any, absolutely anything can happen.
1: Amen. I mean, I think you got it so right. Uh, and and that's exactly the message that I think clients need to hear. That this is about what we what the markets need to do for you, what your money needs to do for you over the long term, how this is all fitting into your long term plan and going to meet your needs over the rest of your life.
2: Yeah, no? Michael, I'm no gonna worry, I'm gonna let I'm gonna time. let your I'm gonna let your your listeners in on a secret. This is my shtick, oh. and I've been doing this now for a decade, and I'm real good at it. Everyone that comes on television, the most popular people have one thing in common. They are absolutely certain. They pound the table. They speak emphatically. <laughs> they don't hedge. They tell you exactly what's going to happen, what they think is going to happen. And that is what the audience actually responds to. That's what they want. They want to be yeah. told, buy this, sell that. They like it. And the reason it's they like it... It's a
1: miracle I'm still on TV. It's a miracle I'm still on <laughs>
2: but, TV. But, but the reason they like it, it's, it's hereditary. If, if If your ancestors were on the Savannah, if they didn't listen to strong leaders, they probably got eaten by an animal, so they didn't pass on their genes. So all of us that are here now <laughs> had ancestors that actually listened to people who spoke directly and with confidence and with authority. So that is why we are susceptible to that type of certainty on financial television, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, I know that I don't know what, what's going to happen. So my whole shtick, and I've been getting away with this for a long time, is that I am absolutely certain, but I'm absolutely certain that I don't know. And I get to, to speak with that same level of confidence and authority, but I also get to tell the <laughs> truth, which is that a lot of different things could possibly happen and that a portfolio should be built to account for all of those possibilities. And uh, I, I've, been, I've been dining out on that shtick for a long time.
1: I've been dining out on it for over 30 years. Uh, I honestly, got to have you know? Say I say I, I don't know, but the, look, the, when I look when I see people who are charlatans in our industry who come up with their forecast for the economy and then say, okay, Fred and Ethel, you have to invest like this because this is what I see, and it sounds brilliant, and they get Fred and Ethel a nod, and then they go back to Fred and Ethel and explain, well, it didn't happen that way. Who knew? And Fred and Ethel are the ones who are you know have lost out. Rather, I I say, you know, I need to build a portfolio that has to go through the absolute unknown. It has to be able to endure a downturn of 20 or 30% over the next two years, and it has to be able to go up. Same portfolio has to go up so that you enjoy a market gain. To do that with the same set of holdings is a much tougher job, but that's the job. It's not to just find some trend and follow it. So I, I, I always love being on TV with you uh, and and I appreciate your advice every day when we get to hear it because I think it's so on point I just uh, so that's that's okay. so
2: great thank you uh, Michael
1: uh, listen you are great to be on the forecast ladies and gentlemen my friend Josh Brown is a pros pro chief executive officer for Ritholtz wealth management what's the website uh, Josh just in case somebody wants to
2: It's it's dot com. very
1: easy dot very easy Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be back with Dan Mahaffey. We're going to be talking about what's going on in Washington, the Mueller report, and a whole lot more when we come back on The Farcast. You're listening to Farcast.
3: Do you have an upcoming function and need a dynamic speaker to engage your audience? You've enjoyed listening to The Farcast, so why not invite Michael Farr to speak at your next event? In addition to hosting the FARCAST and serving as president of the advisory firm FAR, Miller, and Washington, Michael is the longest serving paid contributor to CNBC. He is recognized by audiences, and his presentations on the economic outlook are always well-received. Michael has recently appeared at such venues as the Economic Club of Memphis, the University of Delaware, Matheson Financial Conference, and the YPO-WPO Economic Summit. Add your event to the growing list of organizations who have been informed and captivated by Michael's insights. For more information, or to book Michael for an upcoming event, please email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com, or call me at 202-530-5608. You're listening to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome
1: back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us and staying with us again this week. What a terrific Farcast. Josh Brown, I mean, he's the man. He's just terrific. And, and I, I, I know that sometimes he can take over on the, on the television shows, and when you see him on CNBC, uh, I listen to what he says, particularly about long-term investing. Uh, I loved what he said about 10-year money um, kind of uh, being forgotten by the 10-year investor, and, and sometimes they get confused and think that they've really got 10-minute money. They, they really don't. Uh, I don't believe anybody really has 10-minute money if you think you have 10-minute money go to Vegas Um, they'll give you a free drink you know they'll be very nice to you as you lose everything you have that's what they're good at out in Vegas well uh, our second segment every week we're coming into Washington and we're gonna be talking you know uh, in our third segment with Chris Campbell who's former uh, chief counsel to Yum Brands and really the architect of Yum China we're going to be talking about China Uh, Dan Mahaffey is going to stay with us. And then we're going to have a special forecast just on China, just on business in China, particularly from Yum Brand's perspective with Chris Campbell and with Dan Mahaffey. So uh, we've got a separate forecast special on China that's gonna be posted later tonight. Uh, I really uh, am excited about it. But first, from the center of the study of the presidency and Congress, our senior political analyst on The Farcast, the great, the one, the only, Dan Mahaffey. Welcome back to The Farcast.
4: Thanks, Michael. And when you work policy, you don't even have to worry about 10-minute money because you don't have any money.
1: (laughs) If you're working policy, the uh, uh, hand is always out, isn't it? Yeah.
4: Exactly, exactly.
1: Well, you've got to stay funded. That's very, very important. Uh, Dan, uh, (laughs) what... Once again, we're struggling to find anything in Washington to talk about this week, uh, which which it's just the gift that keeps on giving. So uh, tell us what's going on with homeland security. The president has been down to the border wall with Mexico. Um, We are also uh, hearing about changes uh, with the Secret Service, the Mueller report up on Capitol Hill, and we didn't even cover half of Brexit. So uh, please... (laughs) Uh, Tell me where we're going to start tonight, Dan. What are you watching first?
4: Well, I think we have to look at the reaction to Secretary Nielsen's resignation and what that does mean for the border. Um, We had a good discussion in in last week's episode about uh, what are the policies that might be pursued at the border. And what we're seeing now is this this move by uh, President Trump and I think his, his main White House advisor on this is Stephen Miller and they're really wanting to take a hard line on immigration and really clear out uh, some of the leadership at Homeland Security, uh, find people who are willing to take a, a much harder line on the border, uh, perhaps uh, skirt um, some of these uh, decisions that courts have had on asylum uh, and admitting entrance to asylum seekers. They really uh, are now not that happy with that... those court decisions
1: yeah so that didn't work right. I mean, the President just got turned down on one of those. He wanted everybody to stay in Mexico pending the u s decision about whether they could come or not, and that was turned down. Am I right?
4: yeah, and I think part of that is that 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 is the case correct with that court case that was that was turned down, and I think Congress also needs to step up even if it 's not some of the uh, full funding for the wall but let's look at some of these policies and and perhaps have some responsible legislative solutions so that uh, the White House isn't simply winging this as they go along uh, with policies if Congress is not happy or wants to to push on this uh, let's actually see some legislation as well from their end um, but still this is something that's very important to the White House it's very important to the uh, to the Republican base um although you even see though uh Chairman Grassley uh in the Senate saying, look, we need to we need to not have a leadership purge at Homeland Security just because you're not getting uh the results you want at the border. Is that what's happening? I wouldn't go so far as to, to call it a, a full purge, although I think you know we need to see who is going to be put into place. Um, it's not something, though, where you want to have an acting director for a while. That's one of the things that this administration is doing. Uh, the president likes the, the idea of having acting directors in place. He thinks it gives them uh, flexibility. But really, for the long run, for these, these institutions and the, the checks and balances of our system, it's not what we want to see in the long haul. Did um, I see so today,
1: he, Dan, that there are something like 20% Of uh, the president's senior staff are in are actually acting in their positions. Uh, It's it's, I saw 20% as a number. Is that close?
4: I'm not sure of the exact number off the off the top of my head. But when you think about it, in the sense of that the the White House chief of staff is still technically acting, and then you have probably the the two largest, not probably the two largest. Departments responsible for our national security the the defense department and homeland security uh, now both have acting directors so that is a uh, You know as we're looking into budget season where you know They need to be you need these agencies to have their voice on the hill as you uh, talk about your priorities and plans for the year uh, And yep. next next fiscal year um, all of these is really hamstringing uh, policymaking because it, it it centralizes everything into the White House uh, when you have these acting directors,
1: oh, okay. Well, I read I, I read twenty percent on the internet this morning, so I'm sure that has to be true. Um, so let's uh, <laughs> let's move on. Let's move on to the Mueller uh, uh, report. Um, Barr says that he's going to come back with with the full version, somewhat edited, redacted, mm-hmm. uh, in another week or so. Uh, and and yes. they've uh, subpoenaed uh, William Barr. What's being made of this? I, I, I thought we'd have the report, and, and it, it didn't have enough fire in it, so we're trying to supercharge it. I mean, th- th- this thing won't die, Dan. What, tell me what I should be paying attention to
4: here. Well, I think what, what really started to break was when we got the news that the, uh, the summary that Attorney General Barr provided, uh, that there were some prosecutors on the Mueller team who thought that was a, uh, a rather soft interpretation of what the report said. Um, and, and still it wasn't up to Mueller uh, to decide whether or not there would be obstruction of justice charges because that was something that was uh, given to Barr and Rosenstein at the Department of Justice to make that decision. Uh, what we see from this report, though, will be interesting to see because uh, even if it is redacted, there are certain policies in place. One, that the Department of Justice doesn't want to uh, you know, put out information um, and I think this is important because it's what got uh, you know the issues surrounding uh, FBI Director Comey and Hillary Clinton's emails during the campaign uh, is simply the, the policy of look if there's not enough uh, information to warrant an indictment you still don't want to uh, release information about uh, how bad a, a person may be um, and I understand yeah. that in the sense of it, it protects. Uh, a person who is not prosecuted from still being dragged through the court of public opinion. Um, But then at a certain point, if you're, uh, you know, Senator and secretary Clinton slash president Trump, you're not the average Joe on the street. You're not the the Fred Nethel we speak about uh, on this podcast quite a bit. So uh, that ultimately I think is going to be that battle between Congress on the issues of, uh, of that information of, of what information is held under the confidentiality of the grand jury that 's another issue I think there 's going to be some information in there too that 's related to intelligence operations that uh, yeah, but you may know need Dan, to remain classified. I, I
1: mean, Dan I, I kind of get it, and I kind of get why I should be interested in it but as an, as, as an american voter i 'm sick of it i mean we 've gone through this thing for over a year. we waited for the whole damn report the man 's going to testify can 't we just move on from this i mean i i, I, I mean I'm, i 'm If something had been on fire, I kind of feel like we would have been told it was on fire. We heard nothing was on fire. There were tons of indictments. There were tons of issues. It it wasn't that they didn't find anything. But I I don't know. I just – I'm – I'm sick of this. Should I be sick of it? I mean, is there any there there? And I want to move on real
4: fast here, Dan.
1: So give me a quick answer. Well, I think
4: the, the there there is that, look, there, there was the fire. And I think we, we haven't seen the fire. We've actually seen it burn burnout. There was the firing of Comey. There was all these other measures uh, that the fires happened. I think a lot of this now is, uh, do we learn from this fire to investigate to make sure there's not another fire? If, if there's a okay. reason to care, it's that. I don't think it's, it's down to uh, Trump versus the Democrats. I think if you care about this country, you at least want to know uh, how uh, a foreign power may have influenced our election. Uh,
1: I do. I am interested in how a foreign power may have, interest, you know, affected our election. Um, I'd like to figure it out and get over with it here, guys. You've been doing this for a couple of years. Give us the damn report. OK, Dan, I'm moving on. Uh, before I go to uh, what's going on, the, the, the division among Democrats, on the budget. I mean, the one thing mm-hmm. that whenever I hear politicians argue about budgets and things, the only thing I'm pretty sure about is that spending and deficits are going to head higher. Um, I, I feel like the uh, economic on, uh, IQ on Capitol Hill um, is is barely room temperature, and 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 that doesn't make me feel really good, particularly when I look at the uh, new. Uh, nominees or suggested nominees or potential nominees mm-hmm. to the Federal Reserve of Steve Moore and Herman Cain. I mean, Herman Cain was actually a Fed governor, right? So, I mean, I, mean, I, 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 yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm, I, uh, but I, 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 there's a new criticism of the Fed and Larry Kudlow, uh, what, a week ago, two weeks ago, saying that they had to cut 50 basis points immediately. I mean, six months ago, mm-hmm. Larry Kudlow was, was assuring all of us we had a 4% GDP economy, and now the whole thing's crashing and burning. I, I love you, Larry, but which is it? Um, pick yeah. any of those, Dan, but uh, uh, they're, they're all have me kind of hot and hyped up tonight.
4: Well, yeah, both of them, I would say, the, what we see first with the budget is the, the progressives in the Democratic caucus in the House really want to spend more on domestic programs. That's a, a big priority. Uh, and a lot of the moderates who, though, got elected from swing districts, uh, so called blue dog Democrats, are, are really pushing back on, on spending, saying at least someone in Washington has to be the voice of, uh, of fiscal restraint if Republicans are going to go whole hog on tax cuts uh, and progressive Democrats are just going to keep increasing spending. So uh, what you're so seeing there's there Democrat,
1: is. There's, there's infighting on these uh, budget issues among the Democratic Party?
4: Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there are these progressives who have come in and want to be very vocal on expanding the social safety net, domestic spending, things like that. Um, and as a senior Republican told me, uh, they, they need to get used to having their own tea party, and he, and he called it the, the herbal tea party that the Democrats are going to have to learn to deal with. <laughs> I
1: love the herbal tea party. Okay, uh, now, uh, of course, I'm coming into I'm, – I'm almost out of time here dan um uh, tell me uh, i guess what happens with brexit and is joe biden still an okay candidate i, I i'm in less than a minute what's going on with brexit and biden i got to find out and then we're coming back next week
4: we have brexit we we have to see what happens as, as prime minister may has gone hat in hand to to berlin and to paris to to try and draw this out and I think there's a, a, a softer breakfast, Brexit might be the light at the end of the tunnel if she can get uh, get some time and then do a, a cross uh, House deal with Labour Party uh, to get a softer Brexit. But uh, okay. Europe has to go along with that. Um, beyond that, I think we we just need to keep an eye on um, you know where the where these things settle out. Um, you know that they're they're not uh, clearly defined with Joe Biden. Um, you know, that he hasn't been in the headlines lately. So I think he's still viable, but you know, we haven't heard any further, uh, accusations or, or innuendo. Um, and he's made his promise to be a a less hands-on campaigner,
1: (laughs) the less hands-on campaigner, uh, for, from the study of the presidency and the Congress. Dan Mahaffey, thank you so much for being with us again this week. Ladies and gentlemen, when we come back, Chris Campbell, from uh, a board member from Yum Brands China, uh, a fabulous resume. I'll share it with you when, I, when we come back. Uh, a great discussion on what's going on in China. Are tariffs working? We've got a lot to talk about when we come back on The Farcast. You're listening to Forecast.
3: Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. Tonight's World Segment guest is Chris Campbell, director of Yum Brands China. The interview with Chris Campbell regarding Yum China may include forward-looking statements within the meaning of Section 27A of the Securities Act of 1933, as amended, and Section 21E of the Securities Act of 1934, as amended. We intend all such forward-looking statements in this interview to be covered by the safe harbor provisions of the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. And now... Back to Michael Farr and the Farcast. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast.
1: Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week on the Farcast. What a terrific Farcast we've had tonight. Josh Brown from Ritholtz Wealth Management. In New York you know he's a terrific CNBC contributor he's always on the halftime report Josh's approach to money is not 10-minute money it is 10-year money and a lot of his job he described as reminding clients that their goals are 10-year goals and not 10-minute goals sounds a lot like Miller in Washington we talked also with Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the presidency and Congress uh, about what's going on in Washington, the shakeup on the Mexican border, the shakeup in Homeland Security and the Secret Service—what it all means. Terrific segment with Dan. But now, ladies and gentlemen, I think probably I'm, I'm, the segment I've been most excited about in a long time. As we, in our third segment on the forecast, look to the world and think about these different areas and how they're going to affect investors and domestic markets and the U.S. economy. We look to the world, and we've got Chris Campbell uh, joining us tonight. And he is a director of Yum! China Holdings. Uh, Chris is a friend. Um, He joined Yum! Brands in 1997 as a senior VP, general counsel, and secretary. Yum! Brands, as you probably know, uh, is comprised of five major global brands, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, A&W, it's A&W, but you know A&W, Root Beer. Long John Silver's, they have over 39,000 restaurants in over 125 different uh, countries. He's been at some of the largest com- companies and corporations uh, in, the, in the country. Uh, he has a uh, bachelor's and master's degree in economics from Northwestern University, uh, law degree from Harvard University, uh, and somehow with that, you know, very feeble education, he's managed to do okay for himself, really has. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Farcast. Michael, thank you very
0: much for the kind introduction and one uh, minor correction. Uh, yes. Yum, has, Yum sold Long John Silvers and A&W. We acquired them and sold them after a couple of years. So a small minor technical correction. But so I'm we, delighted we to have be on the
1: call. Well, we are delighted to have you, and we will have uh, just the, the three major brands all over the U.S. Um, as we think about uh, China, ladies and gentlemen, keep in mind that China uh, has a population of 1.39 billion people, 1.39 billion. The U.S. has a population of about 0.33 uh, 3 billion, 3.2 to 3.3 3 billion, Point. So uh, well over a billion more people in China than in the U.S. China has right now a 3.9% unemployment rate, 1.8% inflation. Uh, Average uh, sort of income in China now uh, around $17,000. That compares with about $60,000 in the U.S. It is the world's second largest uh, economy. It has a GDP of about $14 trillion. The United States is at 21.5 trillion, and China's economy is growing faster than uh, that of the United States. Just to keep perspective, remember the United States is 21.5 trillion, China 14.2 trillion. The next largest economy is Japan at 5.2, Germany 4.2, and then the UK, India, and France are all tied at around 2.9 trillion dollars. So. Uh, the two largest economies in the world dwarf all of the others, United States and China. As we've looked at what's going on with China and these tariff wars and trade wars and back and forth between our governments, what a treat to have uh, Chris Campbell join us on the Farcast this evening to give us some insights in what it's like to do business in China. So, Chris, if you'd give us a start, you, you actually were the architect for starting Yum! Brands in China, were you not?
0: Yes, Uh, at that time in in, uh, 2015 and 2016, uh, we studied the possibility of spinning off Yum! China uh, from Yum! uh, as a separate entity. And uh, it was a complicated transaction that we uh, we finished uh, in, and the spinoff occurred in October, Michael, of 2016 where Yum shareholders received one share of, of, of Yum China stock or every share of Yum's shares. Uh, it was a tax-free spinoff and created a very unique entity. Um, Yum China Holdings is a standalone um, uh, U.S. corporation whose sole business is uh, in mainland China. Uh, and its its business is the KFC Pizza Hut. Taco Bell brands, plus three or four other brands Yum China owns. But it's unique because uh, it's a Delaware corporation subject to Western governance and SEC and New York Stock Exchange uh, reporting requirements. But uh, its business is solely uh, mainland China. And so... Well,
1: Chris, so uh, tell me if I may... Uh, Chris tell me if i if i look at yum brands because yum brands was operating in china they were also operating in the us and other countries around the world why did you think why why it, it, this isn't a normal sort of a stock spin off why did you spin off the china operations why was that important
0: uh, really for for two or three reasons michael number 1 is uh, in china we own ninety the Yum China owns ninety percent of the stores. It is not uh, the, the the type of franchise model that Yum brands has in the rest of the world uh, in okay. the rest of the world yum is a, is a franchising company, so you had a different uh, business model entirely when you own restaurants versus when you franchise them. Secondly, I think it we felt it was very important for um, business focus and to become a, a, a Chinese uh, uh, company, totally, and, and not be known as, as a division of a U.S. company, but really be simply a company whose sole business was in China. Uh, tell me why that's the, Was that important business. to
1: the Chinese? Was it important to Yum! Brands? What was the driver behind that?
0: Uh, it, it was important both to Young Brands and to the Chinese. I think that, that um, uh, given our visibility and status in China, our relations right. with the government uh, entities that regulate us became very important uh, to, to be uh, positioned as a China focused entity. Uh, and, you know, as, as I have mentioned, China, we, we employ uh, 450,000. People within mainland China, and so we are very.
1: Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. You Yum Brands in China employs four hundred and fifty thousand people.
0: Correct. Uh, we well, are one of the, the largest employers in China, uh, and these are uh, Chinese citizens. So we're 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 uh, very much uh, aligned with with China as a China business, even though we are. Uh, a Delaware corporation subject to U.S. governance, and that's what I think makes us a unique uh, 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 entity. But, you know, I should say I'll be talking tonight uh, about my experiences in China, not so much, uh, I'm not really speaking on behalf of Yum China, but just speaking on my observation of 30 years uh, doing business in China with multiple different yes. companies, and yes. uh, having good government relations, Michael, is so important uh, in China, and that and that was a uh, 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 one of the objectives and accomplishments I think of the spinoff that we so tell we us how,
1: how that how that works a little bit if you would about how the uh, if you're doing business in China and Yum Brands clearly made a shift from being a U.S. corporation. Uh, You know, solely based. uh, Even though they're a Delaware and they're uh, Delaware C Corp and they're uh, regulated by by the U.S. regulators and they report according to uh, uh, you know the GAAP accounting standards. Um, But but being seen as a Chinese entity is really important. How does that work with the Chinese government? Uh, how involved? How much does the Chinese? How much does China own of Yum Brands China? And how many directors? Uh, what does the board look like?
0: The, the board is is uh, half U.S. and half uh, Chinese entrepreneurs. Uh, okay. The Chinese government does not, uh, uh, at this point, have a stake in Yum China. Um, and uh, but I think the the larger question you ask is uh, the, the the importance of government relations and. Uh, within China, uh, the you know, our business model is building stores, uh, employing people, and selling food. And so there's, uh, in addition to all of the U.S. regulatory environment that we have as a U.S. company, which includes foreign corrupt practices, we uh, need to be in compliance with China food safety laws. We need extensive permitting from the various provinces uh, across China. And so relations all of those are run by Chinese administrative uh, agencies and courts and the uh, chinese does have a legal system that's evolving it's a, a civil code um, which is different than our common law system and so the judges there have uh, more discretion very significant discretion in interpreting law and policy and so it's an, it's very important to ha- maintain Outstanding relations with the administrative agencies and the government to be sure that uh, you're in compliance with uh, with government policy and can operate effectively uh, in the in the legal and administrative regime that they operate. So, do you have and, do
1: you have lobbyists in China? I mean, I would. Yes. It sounds like you need somebody there looking out for you.
0: We have um, uh, government affairs representatives that. Uh, maintain communications with the uh, uh, with, with the provinces. As you know, Michael, there's a central government in China, but also there's right. uh, uh, provincial governments. And as you build stores in these governments, it's important to maintain very good rapport uh, with the uh, 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 provincial authorities as well as with the central authorities in uh, in Shanghai. And that's true with uh, food safety also, as, as you know, young China's in the food business with KFC and and uh, and Pizza Hut and Taco. We have, you know, uh, uh, fifty nine hundred KFC stores, and we're, you know, China's building in China uh,
1: uh, fifty nine hundred KFC stores in China.
0: Yes, in every province. Wow. In, in uh, so over a thousand cities, and so. Uh, As we build new ones, um, we we need the permits, as I said. But we also have uh, have to be sure that our our food uh, supply chain is very safe. Uh, And and, uh, Young China has adopted world-class food uh, safety standards and is is continually uh, working with uh, food safety uh, officials in China to be sure that that uh, we meet and and surpass the standards that uh, are expected of a. Uh, it it, it sounds country. kind of
1: like a nightmare, Chris. I got to tell you. I mean, not only do you have the central government, you have all of these provincial governments. It sounds like there's layers and layers and layers of uh, regulators and rules, which are n- none of which sound very attractive to me. <laughs> it sounds sounds like the sort of stuff that could just make you crazy. Does it make you crazy? But it sounds like no, you guys are it, it's,
0: operating uh, successfully. It, 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 been, Young China has been operating very successfully. And uh, the, the uh, government uh, regulators, uh, uh, they are very well-trained, very uh, accessible. Uh, many of them trained in uh, U.S. and Western universities. Uh, uh, so if you set up good compliance programs, and maintain good relations and communications with the uh, authorities, um, it actually can work very well. But risk management um, is is a uh, vital part of the success of any company in China. And, you know, as, as you look at Young China's risk profile, uh, in addition to, you know, the, the Chinese food safety laws, um, you also have cyber risk. China has laws on... Uh, uh, data privacy and, and cyber uh, issues, and then we have the U.S. Uh, financial reporting uh, uh, requirements and the foreign right. practices. So it is, so, it is uh, compliance is a very important part of doing business with uh, within China.
1: We are coming to the end of this segment and ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to remind you, we're going to have a special forecast this evening. Uh, Chris is coming back, Dan is coming back, You remember Dan has a tremendous expertise in China. China Security uh, speaks Mandarin and studied in China himself after he received his master's degree at Georgetown University. We're going to dig a little bit deeper to find out what it's like to be doing business in China as essentially a Chinese company from one of the greatest experts in the world chris campbell we're so fortunate to have him and gain these insights i think chris finally uh, just in 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 the last 30 seconds here uh uh, before we come back with our next forecast special uh the business the yum business and the restaurant business in china is growing is it doing well it's doing uh well and you know again i'm not, not going to give
0: any uh, insider forward-looking statements, but uh, I, I will say this: that you know this, the data you have presented, China with 1.4 billion people, a growing middle class um, is a very attractive uh, business opportunity for uh, uh, companies like Young China. And uh, you know, a matter of Public Record is we're building and developing new stores every day. And so, uh, I think the general answer is yes, we're we're we, we're off to a good start
1: absolutely fascinating chris campbell is a director of yum china holdings terrific experience on wall street and around the world and internationally thank you so much for being on the farcast
0: thank you michael good being here
1: ladies and gentlemen that's it for another Forecast this week we're going to move very quickly here uh, as we wrap up we're going to stay in studio and uh, actually talk to Chris and Dan Mahaffey more about the business conditions in China, what it's what it's actually like, um, a little bit about Yum Brand's business model, uh, and how the restaurants are different. Uh, apparently the technology in them is absolutely fantastic. You go in to a KFC in China, there is a facial, recognition, technolo- facial uh, recognition technology that will look at you and say, Hello, Fred. Welcome back to KFC. Last time you got the extra crispy. Would you like to do that again? Can you imagine with 1.4 billion people in China that level of technology? We're going to find out more about that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us again on this week's Farcast. I appreciate it very, very much you tuning in. Uh, We will be back again next week uh, with a very grateful heart uh, for all your time and attention. From Naples, Florida, I'm Michael Farr.
3: Thank you for listening to the podcast. We'd like to remind you that if you think you've heard a recommendation to buy or sell any security, you haven't. The information provided in the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. You should consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and your goals. If we can be of assistance at Miller in Washington, please give us a call. Join us next week on the Farcast when we welcome back special guest Tony Fratto. Tony is a Washington insider whose experience and expertise is second to none and also just one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Go beyond the headlines every week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world.